Well, good morning. I agree with John Fowler. In fact, in honor of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, I enjoyed a nice twisty donut this morning. That was quite delicious. <laughs> My name is Adrian, and if you're joining us online today, we welcome you. If you missed any part of this series, Fruit for Every Day, it's been a 10-week message series. You can go back and listen to any of those messages online at carneyefree.com and uh, get caught up with any of those. But we will complete the series today as we talk about this final fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, of course, begins with love that we talked about, and love ties them all together in perfect unity, and it's concluded with self-control. I don't think that's coincidental. These are bookends to a fruit-filled life. Love and self-control is the conclusion of the series today. I wonder, do you remember the Old Testament character named Nehemiah? Nehemiah was this great man in the Old Testament who was known for many things, but he wrote a short book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah, and he was responsible for a critical juncture in the history of Israel as Israel was beginning to return to their homeland after 70 years of exile. They're in Persia, and Nehemiah rose up to a level of prominence in the Persian Empire, though he's a Jewish man, he rises to a level of prominence in the Jewish Empire, such that he becomes kind of like a vice, pres a vice president in the Persian Empire. Uh, he, he's like second in command there, and yet at the same time, he's a construction engineer, he's a man's man, he's a leader, and he's a doer. And God calls him to this place of prominence for the people of Israel during a time of crisis. You can learn much more about the book of Nehemiah later this week if you'd like to read it. It's a short book, wonderful book, all kinds of great notes on visionary leadership and follow-through and commitment and all of that in the book of Nehemiah. We're not going to be in it for the most part today, but there are a couple lines that I notice here during this time of crisis. And the crisis, what was this? Uh, several years earlier, the prime minister, the king of Persia, allows some Jews to go back to their homeland, and as they go back to Jerusalem, they are charged by Nehemiah to begin rebuilding a wall around the city in order to protect the people from foreign military invaders should they need that protection later on. And so these construction leaders and other families have gone back to Jerusalem to build, and Nehemiah sends emissaries to Jerusalem asking for a report, how are things going? And uh, listen to this report. These emissaries come back, and they said to me, Nehemiah 1, verse 3, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah is crushed when he hears this news, such that he responds... The gates have been burned with fire. The wall is broken down. He responds in this visceral way. Uh, verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now, why did he mourn? 
Why did he fast and pray in this moment? It's because the walls around the city were broken down. And that's hard for us to understand in our context today. We don't have a wall surrounding Kearney, do we? I don't think so. But in ancient days, uh, significant cities were built on a hilltop, and they would always have a wall around the perimeter of the city to protect them from other militaries who would come in and conquer the people. And the wall was the primary defense. So ancient Nineveh, ancient Rome, ancient Jerusalem all had walls like this, this is actually the wall that still stands around a portion of old Jerusalem. And it's limestone brick, probably 15 feet high, maybe 3 feet wide, around the perimeter, not of New Jerusalem. It doesn't exist around the perimeter of New Jerusalem. But the old city of Jerusalem, this wall still exists in many places. You go around old Jerusalem to, to this day. Now, it's so critical to have in these old cities, but because without a wall like this in place... That city was easy pickings to any foreign military invasion. Now keep that picture in your mind as you listen now to this verse from the book of Proverbs and you consider this analogy that the book of Proverbs makes for our lives today. Like a city whose walls have been broken down is a person who lacks self-control. You get that? You get what it's saying? Much like the old city of Jerusalem, walls broken down, was susceptible to attack from foreign military invasion, so also the man or woman who lacks self-control. Self-control is our wall of defense against the innate sinful desires and temptations that we all experience. Self-control is the wall of defense against the enemy of our souls who we will all have to fight with, won't we? And without self-control, without this wall, we come to ruin. We are easy pickings. Uh, defined here, self-control is the ability to protect myself by staying within boundaries. It is this ability that we would all have to govern ourselves, to govern our hearts and our minds, our bodies and our actions, such that we would stay within defined boundaries that are made for our flourishing. It's the ability to govern oneself that we would not merely look, look for and live for pleasure. As pleasurable as pleasure is, we all recognize that a pleasurable life by itself is not a good life, is it? A pleasurable life by itself doesn't constitute a good life. It may be pleasurable, but it's usually pleasurable on the front end and horrific on the back end. And it doesn't constitute the good life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, which is one as we lean into the Holy Spirit of God on a day-in and day-out basis, and we actually can become those kind of people every day. Self-control is critical to the life of fruitfulness every day. Here's another passage. Better a man, using the same analogy, better a man who is slow to anger than a warrior, one with self-control 
than one who is able to take a city. Again, just, just sit on this proverb for a moment with me. and Think about it. Better is the man or woman who is slow to anger than a warrior. Wow. That's quite a statement. Better the patient man. Better the man who's able to guard his heart and bring his temptations under control than a warrior. Put another way, he says, better the person who's able to rule their spirit, have self-control, than the green beret who's able to stealthily come into a city and take it down. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's both, there's two different kinds of strength. There's the physical strength of a warrior, of a green beret, but even better than that, even greater than that kind of strength is the man or woman who truly has self-control. And I dare say that might be even rarer today. We will be ruled in any moment either by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. If you surrendered your life to Christ by faith, that you've looked up to Jesus on the cross, you said, Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins, and I ask you to rule in my life, and I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior, and I mean it. Don't just say it, I mean it from the heart. If you've actually done that, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you can be under the control of the Holy Spirit on a day-in and day-out basis. And we will either always, at any moment, at any moment, be under the control of the Holy Spirit, or we will be under the control of our appetites. Isn't that right? At any moment, it'll be one of those two. Now, appetites can build up and they become habits such that we're not even choosing those, but it begins as a choice. And even when it becomes a habit, you can begin to work against that. At any moment, we will be under control either of the Holy Spirit or our appetites, and then we'll be guided by that. Now, if we're under the control of our appetites, that leads to immediate pleasure, but long-term suffering. Fun now, frustration later. A city without walls comes to ruin. Self-control is a prize. It's a prize that God would give to us for the enjoyment of life. Now, my guess is, in this room, we all could identify one or two areas that we would like to grow in the area of self-control, one or two categories of temptation that we would say, I struggle with this one and I need self-control in this specific area from God. If one area doesn't immediately come to your mind, here's a list that might generate some ideas. How about laziness, spiritual apathy, or perhaps greed, or materialism, resentment, or bitterness, sexually impure thoughts, gossip, Truth-telling, judgmentalism, controlling other people, sexual immorality, gluttony, envy, angry outbursts, social media rants, or self-pity. Does that cover you? Okay, who would raise their hand and say, one of those covers my area of self-control? Thank you for raising your hand. Those who refuse to raise your hand, you need to work on lying. We all wish to be more self-controlled in at least one or two of those areas. And there will be no stones from this stage. 
because I do too. It's all of us, every single one of us. And it's again and again and again over the course of life that you see something different repeatedly that here's this new area of temptation that I need to begin to address. Now we are all likely from time to time to fall prey to this idea that there's nothing I can do about it. That I can't change, that I can't overcome this area of weakness, that I cannot develop self-control in this area. And I want you to choose today to say, that's a lie from the pit of hell and I won't believe it. Okay? That's a lie from the pit of hell and you do not need to believe that. You can have victory in any area of temptation. Any area, you can have victory. Change can begin with a plan starting today. Now, why am I so confident that you can have victory in any area of temptation if you embrace a plan? It's because of this. We have the God of the universe actually living inside of us. Like, I mean, just think about this for a minute, okay? The God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the greatest being who could ever be imagined, the strongest power in all of history, the one who was and is and is to come, he decided that he would give his son for us, and the father and son decided that they would give their spirit to dwell in us every single moment of every day if you bowed your knee to Jesus. Wow. That God dwells in you if you have trusted Jesus by faith. Now, if you haven't trusted Jesus by faith, truly surrendered yourself to him, today would be the day. Today would be the day to do that because that is the seed, that is the source, that is the root of power which will give us self-control and all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And greater is the one who dwells in us, the Bible says, greater is the Holy Spirit who lives in us than him who lives in the world. Greater is the Holy Spirit who lives in us than any kind of temptation that would ever come to us, any kind of desire that we might struggle with. Greater is the Holy Spirit that lives in us than him who lives in the world. Can you say our God is able and our God is willing? Come on, let's say it together. Our God is able and our God is willing. He's able to help and he's willing to help. He wants to help. And so we can have victory. Now, I also have confidence that we can have victory in this because I personally have experienced it. I've been ruled by temptations too. Did you know that pastors also struggle? We all do. There is no temptation that has come to you that is not common to other people in this room, including me. All of us struggle with temptation. But I've experienced Jesus changing me from the inside out in numerous different areas where I recognize there is this temptation that I need to begin to fight against. God, would you help me? Friends, would you help me? And Adrian, will you build a plan to make it happen? The comedian George Carlin asked, Have you ever noticed that anybody going slower than you on the road is an idiot? And yet anybody going faster than you on the road is a maniac? Okay, we ain't doing that today, people. We ain't doing that here. That's not what we're about. There's no elbowing the person next to you saying, okay, you need to listen to this one. You need to listen to self-control. There's none of that. 
okay? We're looking in the mirror at our stuff, every one of us. Because the only biblical form of self-control, the only biblical form of control is self-control. Let me say that again. You can't control anyone else, can you? Can you control anyone else in this room? You can't control anyone else. You cannot manipulate anyone else. You cannot make them do what you want them to do. And you've tried, haven't you? I have too. And it doesn't work. The only biblical form of control, the only form of control that you will find in the Bible is self-control. So what we want to do here this morning is carve out four cornerstones for building the walls of self-control in our lives. Not in someone else's life. In my life. I want to encourage you, if you're in the business of taking notes, be sure to take notes today. Uh, maybe you don't need a lot of self-control right now. Maybe you have it down, but there will be a day that you'll need to return to these notes and grow in this area. Maybe the Lord in His good providence will would use this in some man's life or some woman's life that you are mentoring right now. Maybe in God's good providence, He would use this in one of your kids' lives or one of your grandkids' lives. The, that you would remember these four ideas, these four cornerstones though, that I want to communicate though, this morning. And you won't memorize them today, but you can go back to this as a little reference later on. Four cornerstones of a self-controlled person as we build a plan. The first one is right fences. We need right fences in order to have self-control. This is really a starting point. It's a baseline. It's absolutely critical that we would have right fences. If you turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy... It's a very short letter in the back of your Bible. If you don't know immediately where it is, you can turn to your table of contents and get there. It's interesting to me, fascinating to me, in First and Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul is preparing this church in Ephesus that he has been leading for the past number of years through several missionary journeys and a long stay in the church of Ephesus. He's seeking to move on from this church and hand it off to the next empowered leader, a young man named Timothy. And after he's been building him up and discipling him for a number of years, he writes in the midst of that two different letters, 1 Timothy, which has six chapters, and 2 Timothy, which has four chapters, some final instructions for his mentee, Timothy, that he would consider as he seeks to lead the church. And in these, instru in these instructions, two different times, once in 1 Timothy and once in 2 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy with this word, flee. Be prepared to run. And in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, flee greed. Flee the love of money. He says that, guard yourself against this. Live a simple life that you would be above reproach and flee the love of money and things that it buys. In 2 Timothy, you turn the page, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says this. Flee the evil desires of youth. Okay, you fill in the blank there. <laughs> what would be the evil desires of your youth? We all got them. Run away from those. And pursue Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with others who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
This is the word that is used repeatedly in the scriptures, flee. Again, this is fascinating to me that Paul says this to Timothy two different times. Because Timothy is this wonderful young gentleman who has an incredible spiritual heritage. His mother loved and followed the Lord. His grandmother loved and followed the Lord. They were amongst the very earliest followers of Christ after his death and resurrection. Timothy has that kind of heritage. He has this beautiful life of integrity. He follows through on the various expectations of a leader in the church, an elder in the church, as listed in 1 Timothy. He fulfills all of those. He's able to set a sterling example, though he's a young man, he provides a sterling example for men and women who are much older than him. He's a beautiful example of what it is to live in faith, and even so, two different times. Paul says to him, Timothy, as a pastor, you're going to feel this desire to gossip. Oh, run away from it. Flee from that. Don't dabble in it. Timothy, as a pastor, you're going to feel some lust creep up in your heart from time to time. Don't flirt. Pick up a sprint in the other direction. Timothy, from time to time, you're going to feel this anger build up in you. You've got to run from that anger and build up patience. He might say to us, Jonathan, you know that you struggle with alcohol. Flee from bars. Jimmy, you know that you struggle with pornography. Put a filter on your computer so that it cannot get in. Flee from it. Jimmy, you know that you struggle with anger and violence. Don't watch R-rated movies. But like, put up fences in your life. Take it seriously. Years ago, I was reading a biography of the late Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was not a perfect man, but he was a really, really good man. And he was a faithful man, and he sought to live in a beautiful way, above reproach. And the thing that's so amazing to me about Billy Graham is he lived in the public eye for 70 years. And nobody was able to bring a charge against Billy Graham for 70 years in the public eye. It's truly stunning. Like in the highest echelons of power, he personally counseled every president in the United States from President Eisenhower all the way to President Obama for 60 years. He was their personal pastoral counselor again and again and again, and nobody ever brought a charge against him. How? He had this fruit of self-control in a really beautiful and profound way. And so I wanted to study Billy Graham. How did he do this? And I learned through reading, well, one of the biographies of his great life, some of the things that he did. And uh, he kept checks and balances again and again and again in his life, especially with finances. He always committed himself to a life of simplicity and living below his means. He made a good income. His income may have been up here, but he chose to draw a line in the sand and live down here so that no one could bring a charge against him in terms of finances, that he was a greedy person or that he was a selfish person. None of that. He said, here's what I'm going to live on. This is what I make, and I'll give the rest away. That's how he lived. It was just, I'm going to live above approach in this area of finance so no one can bring a charge against me. Same thing with his relationships with people of the opposite sex. 
he developed what is now famously known as the Billy Graham Rule. And everyone in his association, man or woman, agreed to this rule that if you're a woman, you don't go into a hotel room of a man who is not your husband. You don't get into a car alone with a man who is not your husband. And for him, for 70 years, he committed never to be in a car with a woman who was not his wife one-on-one -on -one without another man in the car with him. It's incredible. Now, he did this. People sometimes kind of lob a little charge against him, like, okay, he was so suspicious of women. Nope, that ain't it. He didn't do it because he was suspicious of women. He did it because he was suspicious of himself. He realized that I could do something stupid. I could do something that would get me and the entire ministry that I'm a part of, my entire family off course. I am not special, and so I need to establish proper boundaries in my life. I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating that people simply don't randomly slip into the great failures in life. People don't randomly slip into an adulterous relationship or business fraud or to a violent lifestyle. No, it's numerous micro decisions made one by one over the course of time that lead to a great failure. It's small trespasses over time that lead to great fences broken. So what are the fences that you need to begin to develop to guard your life? that it would not come to ruin. Give it some thought. Another cornerstone that we need is the right inputs. We need to have the right fences, I believe, to guard our mind. We need to have the right inputs to fill our hearts. Does anyone remember what Jesus responded with? What was his primary tool when Satan came to him in the desert during his 40 days of temptation? What was Jesus' primary tool to fight off the temptations that came to him? Anyone? The prayer, and I think I heard, what else? The Word of God, Scriptures. What he did again and again as Satan came to him with repeated temptations was say, it is written. It is written. It is written. It's written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds far from the mouth of God. And so how do I live on the words, the bread, the nourishment that comes from the mouth of God? How am I getting that into me on a regular basis? From time to time, I'll hear from people that they really don't have time. Their lives are so busy, they really don't have time to read the Bible. They really don't have time to listen to the Bible. They don't have time to meditate on a certain choice scripture or memorize a passage. Their lives are just too busy. I'm not like you, Adrian. I'm not a pastor sitting in there in my office twiddling my thumbs doing nothing all day. Listen, it's hard for me too. It's hard for all of us. Now, I want to say to that person who tells me they do not have enough time, how much time do you spend on social media per day? I have not yet had the courage to say that. But I want to say that because we all have the same number of hours each day. And it's funny, we prioritize whatever is most important to us. Whether we would say it or not, we actually end up demonstrating our priorities if we just look at how we spend our time. 
And all of us can fall into this through various distractions. I've confessed before that I sometimes watch too many sports. I love sports. I really, really do. And I can, I can spend too much time on a Saturday watching games or a Sunday watching games. And then all of a sudden I realize I don't have quite the appetite that I used to have for the scriptures. Or I can have a weakness for all kinds of different desserts. I love desserts. It's Halloween week. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, I need his mercy this week. It's so interesting to me as I indulge, or rather as I overindulge in any number of different distractions or temptations. Here's what happens. I find less of an appetite for this. Can anyone hear me in here? Is it true for anyone else? You, you can overindulge in almost anything. And, and as we do not practice self-control in almost any area, what naturally happens is you have less of an appetite for the things that you really need to remain spiritually strong. Whether it be good relationships with a handful of other people who point you in the right direction toward Christ, or studying the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, whatever it might be for you. It's been said, God's word will keep you from sin, or else sin will keep you from God's word. God's word will keep you from sin, or your own sin has a way of keeping you out of God's word. Now this is difficult no matter the generation, but I think it's especially difficult today which is why we have to structure our lives such that we get 10 or 15 minutes every day that we're in the scriptures, in worship music, praying through the scriptures, asking God to lead us today, asking for his help in our areas of need. It's more difficult today than other generations because we have more temptations, more constant inputs in different directions, don't we? Like gluttony has always been a problem, no matter the generation, but today we have 100 different food channels to feed our gluttony. I was talking to an older gentleman who was raised in, I think, the 1950s, and I said to him, like, is it really that much of a difference today than it was in your generation? Lust and pornography have always been around, all the way back to at least the Greek civilization. And he said, yeah, it is different, Adrian. He corrected me. And here's the difference. In my generation, I could find pornography if I wanted to, but I had to go out of my way to find it. Whereas in today's generation, young people growing up today, they have to go out of their way. They have to structure their lives to avoid it. You see that difference? In the past, you had to go looking for it. Today, it comes to you. So you have to have the right fences that would guard your mind and the right inputs that fill your heart with this, which is a time bomb that goes off at just the right time, which helps us flee from the evil desires of youth. And finally, we need to have the right friends that keep us motivated. Here's the third cornerstone, third of four cornerstones. We need the right friends that keep us motivated for the long journey ahead of us. I love again that uh, Paul says this to Tim Timothy. You look at that same passage. He says, flee from the evil desires of youth. Start there. Run away from the evil desires that used to get you down. But that won't be enough just to have a negative. Right? It's not enough just to have a negative, a void, that you would flee from this. You have to also run towards something that is good. So you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with others who pursue the Lord out of a pure heart. What he's saying there is you pursue purity. 
You pursue righteousness. You pursue goodness. You run from what is unhealthy. You run toward what is healthy. And you do so with a few others who likewise pursue the Lord out of a pure heart because it's too difficult to do on our own. I'm so grateful for this church. I mean, there's so many good things happening in this church right now. We've had probably 35 people make faith decisions for Christ in this last year. 32, 33 people have been baptized. We have youth ministry that's bursting the seams. Lots of college students. We're seeing transformation happen here with beautiful facilities. Our capital opportunity is going great. All that, so good. The main reason I have confidence in this church is because about 60% of the adults in this room have community. I, I like... I'm very hopeful for those 60%. Because all of us need a handful of people who are not perfect. That's not what a pure heart means. It's not perfection. It's authentic. A handful of authentic people that are running in the same direction toward Christ with us that we can go to at any time asking for prayer and encouragement and accountability, letting them know that we're struggling right now. Would you be here with me in this journey as I'm fighting against anger or whatever it might be for you? I always have four or five other men who always have freedom to speak into my life, and I can call them anytime, 24 hours a day if I need prayer. 24 hours a day if I'm struggling in some area and I need accountability, I need encouragement, maybe I've stumbled in some way, it is a critical aspect of the Christian life. This is too difficult to do as a lone ranger. So if you don't have a community, man, I'm telling you, you're a sitting duck. You've got to get in community with a handful of other people. Go talk to Todd Marcy and get in a life group. Come talk to Brad Brandt and go to R3 if you're struggling in a certain area. Get in some kind of community with a group of men or women that you would pursue the Lord out of a pure heart with a few others because it's too difficult to do on our own. We need the right fences. We need the right inputs. We need the right friends. And we need the right focus. Let's wake up each and every day this week. Just make this your goal. In the next seven days, wake up, and each and every day this week, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Spend a few moments. Perhaps you take a photograph of Jesus out. I do that on a regular basis. I'll put a photograph inside my Bible, and before I begin my daily quiet time with God, I'll simply gaze at the beauty of Jesus. I'll look at him on the cross, or I'll look at him holding a child in his arms. I'll look at him in the portrait of the return of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. Some portrait that helps me fix my eyes on Jesus, fix my gaze on him because he's so beautiful and because he helps us every day. And this is too difficult for us to do on our own. How do you fix your eyes on the primary focus that gives you strength? each and every day. Hebrews 12 says it this way, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. It's going to require perseverance, isn't it? 
Self-control is not a sprint. It's a marathon. But you're not in it by yourself. You have a few others that are in it with you. And you have Jesus who's in it with you every day. So you set out to fix your eyes on Christ. And you run the race with perseverance. Even though you know that you will never completely arrive, you know that he forgives you when you fail, that he is a friend to you when you ask, that he helps you anytime you have need. And God's desire, which he's able to do in each and every one of us in this room, is to turn the roots of these trees into the most beautiful fruit for the world to see, that we would be people that experience victory in this area of self-control, that we would increasingly become people who are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's not for someone else. It's for you. Pray with me today. Father, we thank you that, that you don't take us where we are and say, okay, now grin and bear it. <laughs> You're not that kind of God. Instead, you take us where we are and you love us right where we are and you say, I want to help you move to a different level. And that's what we've been talking about in this room for the past 10 weeks, that we would just bring ourselves to you just as we are. And we would admit that we want to grow in these areas, these beautiful virtues, these beautiful characteristics. And so we say, God, would you do it again? Would you keep working in us? We thank you, Father, that you're in the business of making us more like Jesus. That is our heart's deepest desire. Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that our deepest desire is more and more pleasure, but that ain't it. Our heart's deepest desire is to become people of character people of virtue, people of integrity who look more and more like Jesus. Father, would you please give us strength where we are lacking self-control? Would you build up these cornerstones of the right fences and the right inputs and the right friends and the right daily focus? And would you help us, God, to flee from the evil desires of our youth different for every one of us in this room but if we're honest we can identify something so would you please help us to run from the evil desires of youth and then to begin to pursue a life of beauty of righteousness of faith love, of peacefulness, with a few others who are likewise pursuing you out of an authentic heart. And God, we'll be careful to give you all the glory for what you alone can do. We invite you to begin doing that in us. We've identified areas where we have need. Please, Holy Spirit, would you help us now? Through Christ we ask.